Welcome to Culture Crossings, a podcast for globally mobile millennials with cross-cultural identities. I'm Phoebe. And I'm Asuka. With COVID-19 pandemic, many students and teachers are transitioning to virtual settings. In this episode, we'd like to focus on the intersection between online learning and cross-cultural education. Today, we are very fortunate to have a guest, Ms. Naomi Funahashi from Stanford Program on International and Cross-Cultural Education, or otherwise known as SPICE for short. At SPICE, Ms. Funahashi is the manager of Reishawar Scholars Program and Teachers Professional Development. With more than 15 years of teaching U.S.-Japan relations to high school students online in respective countries, she is an expert on global education, online education pedagogy, and curriculum design. For any listeners interested in career development, please note that we will switch into a career conversation towards the end of the episode because we'd like to learn from and share our guests' career choices and experiences as cross-cultural professionals. Welcome, Ms. Funahashi, and thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. So uh, to start off, Ms. Funahashi, um, could you tell us a little bit more about SPICE and the programs that you manage? Sure. So SPICE, as Asuka mentioned, is the Stanford Program on International and Cross-Cultural Education. And we are a program that's part of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Um, So FSI, uh, for short, is a big research institution that focuses on a lot of different areas, um, but our mission at SPICE is really to serve as a connection, kind of a bridge, between a lot of the research that takes place at FSI and K-12 and community college schools, so students and teachers. So we try to develop curriculum materials that help teachers to enhance their students' understanding of the world, Um, And then we also provide online teaching to students directly, in which we try to connect students with a lot of the research that's happening at a pretty high level across the Institute, you know, to make it accessible to them. Great. In connecting students, could we ask how does SPICE harness technology to promote cross-cultural learning? Sure. Um, So SPICE has been engaged in online teaching and learning since 2004. Um, So that was when my colleague, Waka Brown, taught the first Reishauer Scholars Program cohort. And then I took over from the third cohort of the course, and I've been teaching it since spring 2006. So the current 2020 cohort is my 15th year teaching this course. Um, And it's an intensive online course on Japan and U.S.-Japan relations that's taught to 25 to 30 students across the United States, high school students, every year. And there's a pretty selective application process, and then we spend about five months together from February to June, learning everything about Japanese history, religious belief systems, U.S.-Japan relations, education, foreign policy, uh, contemporary society, and more. Um, But what we really try to do is to introduce students to both American and Japanese perspectives on the topics that we cover so that students can really use their own critical thinking skills to deepen their understanding of the U.S.-Japan relationship. Since this course started in 2004, you can imagine that technology has advanced quite a bit in that time. And so uh, it's become easier, I would say, to teach online. Um, I think students would say it's become easier to learn online in many cases. Um, When we first started teaching these courses, 
students didn't always have access to high-speed internet at home. They didn't always have laptops at home. So we used to loan out laptops to students who needed them. Um, it's pretty commonplace now for students to have access to those things. So since then, we've expanded our online course offerings quite a bit. So for US students, we now offer three different courses, the Rush Hour Scholars Program, which teaches about Japan, uh, the China Scholars Program, which teaches about China, and then also the Sejong Korea Scholars Program, which teaches students in the US about Korea and Korean history. So there's a lot of interest among students in the US on those topics. Uh, and then we also now offer courses to students in Japan. So after we had been teaching the Raishawa Scholars Program for a while, we wanted to give our RSP students opportunities for cross-cultural connections to be made with peers in Japan. So in 2015, SPICE launched the Stanford eJapan program, uh, and that is taught to high school students across Japan. Um, and the course is taught entirely in English, um, which is an incredible challenge. And I'm always so impressed with these students um, and their dedication and their ability to grapple with some really complex issues around US society and US-Japan relations in what is, for the majority of the students, their second language. Um, so it's a really impressive undertaking, I think. It's really valuable to see the opportunities that happen um, when we bring together the RSP students and the eJapan students together for those cross-cultural interactions. You know, you mentioned that you are now working with students in Japan as well. So what are some of the things that we need to be mindful of to keep everyone engaged? For example, in your article on SPICE, you mentioned about setting basic ground rules for discussion and um, sometimes American and Japanese students might perceive silence uh, differently, for example. So what are your tips on, you know, keeping everyone engaged? And what are your tips on overcoming some of the challenges? As you mentioned, there are many challenges, I'd say, especially when you're trying to engage students online and they're not able to uh, interact face to face and have some of those um, nonverbal cues be more present. So, you know, one important thing, I think, is to make sure that students are mindful of potential differences in communication styles and cultural norms around those communication styles. Um, there are a lot of differences, right, in how people communicate and how they convey meaning. And one way that this has been framed by some scholars is high context cultures versus low context cultures. So typically in a high context culture, um, people tend to communicate in ways that rely more heavily on silent cues, um, you know, nonverbal cues and the sort of cultural context. Um, so that's very prevalent in Japan, I would say. And then low context cultures tend to use more clear verbal communication to communicate. Um, and then they're less reliant on sort of that cultural context to convey their meaning. So Americans tend to be more sort of explicit, I think, in their verbal communication um, with others. Um, and that's not always the case uh, for Japan. So it's important for students to kind of just be aware of those differences, I think, uh, leading into any type of cross-cultural interaction. But I think that's especially important online. When we set up our virtual classes between the Japanese students and the American students, we really try to prepare students in advance as much as we can, you know, ask them to prepare some discussion questions on the assigned topic so that they have something kind of in their back pocket if there is a lot of silence. 
And then one thing that we always try to do, um, if the technology allows, and we use Zoom at Spice for our online classes, and we're able to use the breakout room function within that, which has been really helpful for us. So if you're able to facilitate small group discussions, we try to ask for student volunteers to be discussion leaders before the actual session happens so that they can be provided with some guidelines for moderating the group. And then also we ask for someone to volunteer as a reporter to share back to the whole class. And they can talk a little bit later about the importance of having some time to debrief. But I think setting ground rules for discussion is important. But American students uh, typically are encouraged to really speak up and voice their opinions in class. Um, and that's not always the case in Japanese classrooms. So one thing that we've seen in the small groups, especially, is that, you know, say there are eight students together in a small group um, and the facilitator is an American student and they'll pose a question. And then everyone is silent for a little bit, trying to maybe think of an answer that they would like to share. Um, but it's not comfortable always for a Japanese student to just start speaking up. You know, usually there's a little bit of time to kind of think about what you want to say. Um, but oftentimes American students take that silence as, oh, uh, I guess they don't have anything to share. Um, when in fact, they're just taking time to think about what they want to say and also trying to be respectful of others who might want to share their opinions as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important for American students to be aware of that um, and to just give time and space for thought and consideration to happen. Thank you for sharing that perspective. It's so true that technology or access alone doesn't initiate that kind of communication and how cross-cultural knowledge really matters here. There was just one follow-up question I wanted to ask. So how do you kind of overcome that initial hurdle and then, you know, eventually have them be more comfortable having the more open communication style? Um, one of the guidelines that will provide the small group moderators is to sort of have some things in mind for beginning the small group with. So self-introductions is one. Um, and then depending on the topic of the session for that day, to have each student share something um, related to that topic. For example, um, we had a session a few weeks ago where we brought together the Reichshauer Scholar students with the Japan students. And it was set up sort of like a social hour. Um, so two of the groups um, were specifically focusing on COVID-19 issues, um, sort of comparing what the situation was like in their local communities, depending on where they were. Um, other groups were focused on things like, uh, you know, education. Other groups, I think, were focused on things like economic policy. So students could kind of talk about different topics depending on which group they were assigned to. But one of the things that the small group moderator did at the very beginning was to ask students to introduce themselves, talk about where they're living, either in Japan or the US, and talk a little bit about their local community, uh, and then also to address something related to that topic. So for COVID-19, for example, um, each student could share a little bit about how their schools were adjusting to this transition from in-person school to online school, or depending on you know, what their school policies were, sort of what the situation was like. So I think giving each student a chance to talk about themselves um, in a way that's comfortable 
um, and not very intimidating, you know, kind of helps to break the ice a little bit um, and make students a little more comfortable, I guess, with sharing their different perspectives and ideas. And it's important to, even before we go into these joint sessions between the two cohorts in each class, I think it's very important to make sure that students feel that there's, they're entering into a learning community that in which mutual respect is really important, um, that trust is really important, so that they know when they enter these Zoom sessions or they enter these classes, that they're entering into a safe learning space um, where they won't be judged for sharing their perspectives um, and where that diversity of thought and perspective is really valued and not seen as something that they should shy away from. Um, and that's difficult for some students. You know, um, not everyone feels comfortable just coming out and sharing their ideas about things. So it's a process. Um, and I think it's something that is really important to set forth from the very, very outset of the course. How do you create that safe learning space as an educator? I mean, I think a lot of it really depends on the person, on the teacher. I think that it's important for any teacher to kind of go into the teaching profession knowing that you have as much to learn from your students as they have to learn from you. And so establishing that sense of trust and mutual respect is really key, um, not just in online teaching, but any kind of teaching or interactions with students. You know, it's just really important for students to feel like they can voice their perspectives without judgment. Um, so establishing that trust in any community of learners, for me, is critical from day one. And then also, you know, making sure that students understand that that diversity is a gift. You know, the different backgrounds and perspectives that each of my students bring to my class is an opportunity for all of us to learn. Um, and I am always sure to mention that from day one so that students know that, you know, this is not just a class where they're sitting uh, in their homes, listening to lectures and doing these readings and having that be the only form of sort of information um, that they're receiving. You know, the information and the perspectives that, that their peers are reflecting on based on the readings and the lectures and things that we are going through as we learned about different topics through the course, those perspectives that each student shares with each other is, I would say, even more valuable um, in some cases than the actual just content that we're covering. But it's a process, I think, because sometimes that's new learning environment for students to be in. So like I said, just making sure that there's mutual trust there and mutual respect, I think is really key for any learning environment, but especially online. Um, you mentioned that you had a discussion earlier with your students regarding COVID-19. So speaking of that, what would you say is the significance of teaching about cross-cultural understanding, particularly in the context of COVID-19? You know, there's resurgence of discriminations against people of Asian descent. I think that's really important. Um, there is a particular need right now, especially to promote cross-cultural understanding in the age of COVID-19, because there is a lot of anti-Asian sentiment that we've seen across the United States in particular. Um, and breaking down these stereotypes and biases and really making a concerted effort to counter some of these um, often very racist framings of the coronavirus 
um, you know, is important for us to do, especially as cross-cultural educators and promoting deeper understanding across cultures uh, has really never been more important, um, I, I would say. And, you know, cross-cultural understanding is something that I think we should really all strive to achieve and improve upon. Um, you know, although most of us are currently physically isolated from others, it's important to understand, you know, that this is a global pandemic. Um, it's impacting everyone in different ways. So, for example, in the joint virtual class that we had between the RSP and the eJapan students, for me, it was really fascinating to see and for everyone to learn about how the, the pandemic was impacting daily life, how local governments were shaping policy around the pandemic and how schools were proceeding, you know, in communities all across Japan and all across the United States. Um, there were a lot of differences, of course, but there are also a lot of similarities. And there are a lot of connections that students were making in terms of similar anxieties maybe that they had or shared concerns or shared challenges. And so being able to make those cross-cultural connections around this shared experience um, was something that was really unique and valuable, I think. Related to that, um, for any parents or guardians in the audience, I was wondering if you could speak about um, ways in which families could sort of carry on these types of conversations at home. Um, you know, a lot of these conversations uh, around cross-cultural understanding, especially with young children, I think really do start in the home. Um, you know, the types of perspectives that young children are exposed to and that they begin to understand. I mean, there are so many different cultural narratives that you can expose your kids to. Um, there's, you know, you can really seek out some of the amazing children's literature that's out there and use that as a starting point to have some of these conversations with kids. Um, you know, I have two young kids. I have a six-year-old and an almost two-year-old. Um, and we always try to bring in different stories and introduce different perspectives and cultures, um, you know, and let them know that there isn't always one quote-unquote correct answer or perspective, um, but there are always multiple ways of looking at a situation. There are always multiple beliefs um, and that they're all valid in their own right. Um, but it's important for parents to make that explicit to their young children and to start those conversations at home where students can, or young children can really ask a lot of questions about those differences and uh, maybe feel a little bit more comfortable having those conversations with parents than they might with a teacher. Right. So when facilitating this kind of cross-cultural dialogue in class or other professional settings, could you sort of speak about how to cultivate our own global competency as conversation facilitators? Yeah, I think that, well, not even for educators, but for anyone, I mean, taking the initiative to learn about other cultures and perspectives and being aware also of our own unconscious and implicit biases um, is really important. Um, seeking out resources and communities that are focused around these efforts to develop and deepen global competency is something else that as educators that we try to do. Um, for example, I know that the Asia Society has an initiative called the Center for Global Education. Um, they have a lot of fantastic resources and professional development on teaching for global competency. And I'd also encourage people to seek out resources in your local communities. Um, there's so much that you can learn about the world just from 
uh, the people and the communities around you. Um, and I think that people, uh, hopefully there are a lot of people out there doing this already, but um, you know, I think people would be surprised maybe um, at the depth of sort of uh, global exposure and understanding that you can get just from the people around you. But I think that is something that uh, you can never sort of stop learning about, you know? Um, it's sort of a, a never ending journey, um, even for people who are bicultural or, you know, consider themselves, um, I don't know what you would call it these days, you know, people who have a lot of different backgrounds, either ethnically or culturally, or, you know, kind of depending on where you've lived or grown up, um, there are always new things to learn about uh, different perspectives. So, uh, you know, encouraging people to just never sort of stop that journey. So true, it's a never-ending journey. And um, in terms of this context, it's great to see a lot of free open to public webinars. And um, related to that though, um, there's just so much influx of, for example, Zoom webinars. And I've been hearing from some people that they're having what's called the Zoom fatigue. Um, it's either by having too many Zoom calls during the week, or there could be international students connecting to American lectures at 2, 3 a.m. or at crazy hours if they're connecting from abroad. And um, I was just wondering if you could share any self-care tips or some kind of strategies to navigate this. Um, yeah, I can definitely relate to this. Um, I uh, am familiar with Zoom fatigue. <laughs> Even my kindergartner has Zoom classes these days. So there seems to be ne never ending options for um, access to these types of things, which is great. Um, but I think self-care is also really important. Um, you know, in terms of our Zoom classes that we have at SPICE, you know, we just try to make them as interactive and engaging as possible. Um, it's much easier to uh, participate in a Zoom session, I think, if you are more actively engaged and you have more opportunities to do that. So small group discussions are really great for that. Um, but also, whenever possible, just try to schedule time in your calendar for non-screen activities that you enjoy. Um, for me, I try to do, well, this isn't always a relaxing thing because I do have two young kids, but, you know, trying to cook or bake or, you know, get out for fresh air um, safely with a mask or sit by a window with a good book um, or even try to find a new hobby, maybe. I mean, you know, for example, I recently purchased an ukulele. <laughs> I, I don't play, um, but I'd like to learn. And I kind of figured, well, you know, um, that can also double as music enrichment lessons for my kids. So <laughs> just something different, um, something kind of to break out of the monotony of being at home all day, every day, um, and just trying something new. So uh, moving on to our career conversation. So some listeners may be thinking about their future careers or in transition for a next career. Um, and as someone with, you know, a cross-cultural background, how did you navigate your career options? So I was born in Tokyo, Japan, um, but I grew up between Los Angeles and Seattle in Japan. Um, my father is Japanese. My mother is half. Japanese, half Caucasian American. Um, so, you know, I grew up kind of moving around the Pacific, um, being exposed to lots of different uh, types of communities. Um, and then I ended up finishing high school uh, in an in international school in Tokyo. 
So population of students that um, tend to go to international schools are very similar um, in background to myself. And so I think that having that opportunity to be someone who kind of felt between cultures and places, um, and then becoming part of a community where there are a lot of other people who also shared that experience was really meaningful to me. Um, but it took me a long time um, to sort of feel like I had a community that I could call a home. Um, and once I found that, that continued to be my sort of home for a really, really long time and still is. Um, a lot of my close friends even now are friends that I made in high school um, in Tokyo. And so, uh, you know, that played a big role in me ending up as the teacher of the Rice Shower Scholars Program because I felt that uh, I had finally sort of been able to find an opportunity where I could really leverage my experiences that I felt in childhood of always seeking out a community um, where I felt comfortable. Um, and so in the Rice Shower Scholars Program, what I try to do is to cultivate a community of people who have very different backgrounds and come from very different places, but they have this shared passion and interest in Japan and learning about Japan and the U.S.-Japan relationship. And so my hope is that, you know, I'm trying to create an online space, an online community um, where students can kind of find that home and find that place of comfort. Um, so that really influenced uh, my career choice in that sense. But um, in terms of becoming a teacher, um, I actually started out in the tech industry um, in San Francisco in the early 2000s. Um, and then I learned quickly that it really wasn't what I was passionate about um, and ended up going back to school to get my teaching credential. Um, because, you know, growing up, I had just had some really incredible teachers um, who were inspirational to me and um, decided to go back to school to become a teacher and uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, teaching is really a labor of love. Um, and it's important to understand that teachers have just as much, if not more, to learn from their students um, as they do to teach their students. So, you know, anyone who is interested in becoming a teacher or pursuing education um, as a career, I think, have an open mind and an open heart um, and be humble and understanding of the fact that everyone is learning every day. Um, and people come from different backgrounds and have different strengths. And, uh, you know, the most that uh, I can do as a teacher is to try to um, encourage everyone to showcase their strengths um, and also be open to learning new things uh, along the way from different perspectives that people share with them. Just wanted to kind of follow up, um, you know, growing up the way you did, I'm sure there have been advantages, especially with your career that you have now. So what are kind of some of those advantages that you can leverage with the way you grew up into your career? But on the other hand, what were some of the challenges that you had in terms of determining your career as well? It's a good question. I mean, I think that I had always had an interest in education. So it wasn't as though I felt uh, challenge necessarily in terms of sort of finding my uh, my place. Um, and there were a few different other stops along the way um, to becoming a teacher. Um, I also worked in the uh, Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California. And that is actually where I got my foot in the door um, of education in terms of uh, meeting 
my future colleagues at SPICE. Um, there were a bunch of educational initiatives that I was involved in there uh, that focused on the Japanese American community in the Bay Area. Um, I think that having sort of a, a cross-cultural, bicultural background um, gave me some tools to be more flexible and be more open-minded about what possibilities were out there. But in terms of teaching, uh, you know, I think that having that understanding of, you know, there isn't always one right answer. Um, there are always different ways to look at uh, any topic or, you know, different perspectives on any issue. Um, I think that helps anyone who wants to go into education because you are more understanding of the different ideas that students are bringing to the table and more understanding maybe also of setting up a community of understanding and learning in your classroom that values those differences. Mm -hmm. All right, so again, Ms. Manohachi, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story today. Also, we'd like to thank Dr. Gary Mukai, who is the Director of SPICE, for supporting our collaboration. Yes, and we will post Ms. Funahashi's recent article on facilitating virtual cross-cultural learning on our website for further reading. Our website is at www.2020culturecrossings.wordpress.com, and we are also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Listening to Culture Crossings. This has been Phoebe and Oscar. Bye! Bye.